Welcome to the Ethics of Caring, an ongoing project that explores what it means to be ethical in the arts. I'm Natalia Swanson, and I'll be guiding you through the conversations myself and the rest of the creative team behind this podcast have been having over the past six months. With artists and activists, community organizers and professors, conservators, curators, art laborers, and academics of many identities and backgrounds. We've been asking ourselves and our fellow collaborators unfair questions. Questions that no one individual could have the answer to. And I'm sharing this up front because I think it's important to communicate that we are not pretending to have solutions to the problems we're witnessing, that we're experiencing. Instead, we're giving ourselves space to sit with the complexity of the issues, be vulnerable in our unknowingness, and okay with contradicting ourselves and disagreeing with each other respectfully and with the intent to become more expansive in our understanding. Because it's a podcast about being ethical in the arts, we're going to straddle the conceptual and the practical and filter our observations through some philosophical frameworks with the attempt to affect small changes within ourselves and our institutions. In the second half of this episode, I'll introduce the ethics of care as a framework. But before we get into that, we're going to share some clips from conversations that'll give you an idea of what you can expect this season. That demonstrate the frustrations and tensions that motivate our conversations and the topics we're exploring around ethics. Specifically, how can we center relationships and compassion in our practice? What does it mean to devalue the idea of competition and instead promote collaboration? How can we enact short and long-term efforts to cultivate community? And what does it mean to approach preservation and collection care work from a place of holism? First, we're going to hear an excerpt from a conversation I had with Divya Sareff, who has held multiple roles in architecture and design, working as a designer, researcher, and currently in curatorial. She is based between San Francisco, California and Calcutta, India. Um, do you have, I mean, I'm guessing that now being um, in the U.S., like being in a colonial state affects your feelings about preservation work and how you interact with the Yes. Um, I think you know this. I have very complex, complicated feelings around like preservation work and curatorial work within the context of this country also like I have so many opinions on um, museums trying to do decolonial work but then doing the work in such a in such a performative and empty way like trying to appear as if they're doing the work but they're not actually doing the work and so I think I don't know. I think it's really uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, it is uncomfortable, right? Like, yeah. like awareness that we are in um, and, you know, in, indirectly benefiting from and supporting other people very directly um, benefiting from um, colonial practices and also being in a museum setting which is um, inherently a 
like colonial practice, right? Mm -hmm. Museums that are birthed out of colonialism that, you know, early constructed with objects. Um, This is, you know, really simplified, but like constructed from objects of people traveling and collecting, like, you know, collecting in colonized states specifically and then bringing it back, right? And then bringing it back and then being like, oh, this is what we're giving to people who don't have money to travel, right? Like you're showing off. Like the, you know, the, the stolen or appropriated goods from other lands. Like that's the birth of museums. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we work in a modern art museum, so it's come a long way from there. But like that's the history that we're rooted in. Um, and so, yeah, the, we, yeah, we all should have conflicting and uncomfortable feelings about it. I, I don't know. Any, I mean... I'm not sure of anyone who doesn't have conflicting feelings about it. I mean, maybe a few people, but like, um, I think the overarching group of people who are, you know, just conscientious and reflective about the way in which we're supporting problematic systems must have some conflicting feelings. And that's every conversation that we've had on the podcast, not just the conversations we have on the podcast, but like more generally, like people are feeling deeply conflicted about doing this type of work and trying to do it that in a way that aligns with our individual um, ethics, right? Like how, or really morals, but like, how are we being moral individuals? Like how are we um, embedding um, ourself in, in these processes and these systems and these institutions in a way that we don't, um, we feel like we're doing, we're having some positive impact. I think we all need to feel, or want to feel that way. I don't know if we need to feel that way, but I think we, we want to feel that way because it's because of all this conflict around complicity with things we don't agree with. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. And it's like this conflict, it's not only like, just this idea of being in an institution, but it's like being in an institution and working with people and an institution as large as the one we work in, like we have over 350 colleagues and it's to be like, just from a curatorial perspective, like to be a curator, like the word literally means to care and to care for a collection. And it's like, how can you care for objects care about the stories you're telling care about the people stories you're telling if you're not um if you're not like rooting your practice in mutual care like mutual care within the institution mutual care for the people you're working with we wanted to start off with this clip because it's illustrative of the feeling many of us are experiencing Frustration with how our work is grounded in colonial practices and upholds values from these social systems that we're living within. It can be debilitating to think about these systems and how they permeate all aspects of our lives. But to Divya's point, this is why we cultivate community. This is in part what motivates us to have these conversations and then to share them in this format so that way we can be there for each other, to offer support when we have the capacity to do so, and to receive it when we need it. These conversations are also rooted in empowerment, something that we can all offer to each other once we get past the idea that we are in competition. The people behind this podcast have a lot of thoughts to share about competition and how capitalism and neoliberalism are reliant on competitive values and the benefit that we all receive by rejecting competitive mindsets. 
We're going to unpack some of these thoughts in our episode on cultivating community and on the episode that explores sustainability within academia. So unsurprisingly, there is some tension around the word ethics. It's such a broad and nebulous term. Um, It's sometimes used to describe a branch of knowledge, um, a past version of myself understood ethics academically as a branch of moral philosophy, often taking the form of a position statement on what it means to do right or wrong in a particular situation. And I've been feeling conflict over what this means in the context of my work as a conservator for years now, ever since I started to co-teach a class on ethics in textile conservation to graduate student conservators. What does morality mean in the context of heritage conservation, academia, museum culture? I'm still not sure, and I tell this to the students every year. Marina Herreras, a conservation activist, academic, and practitioner currently based in Bristol in the United Kingdom, reflects on the conflict some of us feel when we hear the term ethics and shares her thoughts on what it can mean to ethically participate in compromised systems. About being an ethical worker, I have to say I have been struggling with the word ethics. This is because I think it connects connect us uh, to values such as morality, which brings a kind of colonial aspect to, cons- to the cons- conversation. So I'm not saying that ethics does not exist, but I feel it's a word that needs to be looked at more carefully. It's like truth, isn't it? What is truth? I believe each one of us has our own truth and this this will guide our behavior independently of our ethics. So I think it's subjective. I mean, ethics can be guided by personal decisions too. So it's a complex discussion in my view. But so far, what I can say is I am committed to what I think it's right for me and for the community I live in. Sometimes I will not do certain things because they are not aligned with my values. But other times it will be difficult to not be part of this system uh, due to survival purpose. However, I believe that even being part of this system, we can still question it, bringing our views and have discussions about how we can change it. It's likely that some things will take a long time to change, but at least we have been trying to change and not just accepting it. So Marina makes a few points here I'd like to highlight. One is the power of dialogue to affect change and our agency to be intentional in the way we communicate. I'm aligned with her in believing that discourse is the most basic and foundational tool of collective resistance. Marina also talks about the nature of this work being long-term. And this is something I think everyone needs to come to terms with at some point that we live within social systems that won't likely be dismantled in our lifetime, that we'll be grappling with the consequences of a rapidly deteriorating climate for many, many, many decades to come. 
again, there is a possibility that we can feel debilitated by this idea. But instead, we can think about our potential for affecting change at different levels. Syra Haki, a conservator at the National Archives and Records Administration, who has previously worked at the Minnesota Historical Society and received their master's um, in art conservation and art history from NYU, shares their thoughts on enacting short and long-term change. I think the way I think about it is um, it's, a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's such an irritating thing to say, but um, it's <laughs> true. Like at my last workplace, like I was very involved in the forming of an employee resource group. And our focus with that was like basically community building and human support. Like as time went on, that became the most important thing was to be there for each other um, and like promote self-care and like provide people with a safe place. Um, And that was like the short to medium term kind of level of change. And then over the last couple of years that I was at the Minnesota Historical Society, um, there was a movement to unionize and we got to vote for that union and that was one of like my favorite things about being there like the thing that I'm like happiest I got to do while I was there was to vote for a union um before I left and that's like a long-term like change thing right so we've got to kind of hit it in multiple different ways um I think this is change that is going to happen very slowly and very gradually because we're trying to change effectively the essence of our institutions. And that's not going to happen until there are people embedded throughout the organizational structure that believe similarly in, I don't know, working at a more human, working on a more human level. And that's just going to take a lot of time. Like that's just something that we can't like we have no control over. So like in the short run, it's important to kind of recognize that like, yes, the systems we work in like are compromised and there's only so much that we can do about that. But then to like make sure that like we are leveraging the power that we have to advocate for those who have less power than we have. So, you know, kind of modeling that there are multiple ways of approaching an object and a treatment and no one of them is perfect. I think like trying to like model the approach that we think is is the way to kind of be and to go forward to like the next generation of conservators. That's probably at this point the most important thing. But the other part of it is I think it's really important to like make sure we reach out and talk to our allied professions like archivists, librarians. Um, you know, curators, whoever it is, Um, because if we stay in our little conservator silos, then we are not going to change the institution at large. I really appreciate Syra sharing how they leveraged their authority to affect change. This is a theme that permeates many of our conversations, and it begins with self-awareness and recognizing your relative position of power and privilege, which shift depending on your situation. 
Syrah also touched on how there are different pathways to cultivate community sustainably, and these two ideas are really closely interlinked, so we'll explore both of them in the episode on labor and community organizing, which will feature a conversation I had with a labor activist and union organizer who makes a case for why unionizing is the most logical way to create real change within the institution. And of course, unionizing is one of many pathways to affect change. It has benefits, it has negatives, and we'll talk through them. Um, but I think partially this is Cyrus' point, that we can consider these different pathways simultaneously. So I want to pause and just call attention to the fact that this may not sound that sustainable, asking ourselves and each other to explore many methods at one time, when we are already overworked and largely feeling burnt out. What I've learned through this process is that we can select the pathways and the options for affecting change that energize and motivate us rather than those that exhaust and deplete ourselves. So the next clip is between Lihi Levy, a contemporary arts conservator who's based between Berlin, Germany and Tel Aviv, Israel, and Nupu Prakash, who is a gender and law expert working in the area of gender equality and human rights for over eight years. She's currently based in The Hague, Netherlands, and they have a conversation that's really compelling. I'm excited to share it with in full with you at a later point in time. But right now, we'll just hear an excerpt on why it's important to engage with these social systems from the inside out. Of, uh, a lot to learn. I mean, I'm a conservator that's operating in, uh, in the Western world. And it's, it's always, it's a struggle because as a laborer, I, I am always complicit with the bigger structures. And of course, um, <laughs> if I'm working for a museum uh, or if I would choose to work with a big collector or something like that, um, just as a, as a finding work for myself, would would mean that I'm uh, explicit ex, uh, complicit sorry <laughs> with um, with these uh, forces just by living here in the West. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't agree with that. No. Okay. I, Elaborate, no, please. I, I always believe that uh, engagement and conversation is is an important tool to make making things better. I, I don't believe in, um, I, I mean, I, I think that's a more constructive way of bringing change uh, because um, A, we know that a lot of times people tend to do certain things, you know, for example, what we just discussed, uh, due to ignorance or or the same education that we're talking about, right? So like, that that conversation about colonization of minds we've we've all gotten a similar education and and unless one goes to seek out knowledge particularly on something it's really hard uh, to know where you're going wrong so i think it's uh, a lot of us learn from our colleagues from our peers from our friends um you know you and i learned so much from each other that we were so ignorant about um, and if I were to say, oh, I was, I'm not going to engage with uh, person X because, oh, they do this, then A, I'm not giving that person a fair opportunity to understand where that person comes from. It could totally be 
you know uh, a space of ignorance and not sort of willful willful malicious intent to steal um and then also i i miss the opportunity of creating space for people like me right mm-hmm. um I, there's so much conversation about uh representation and the glass ceiling and i think it's 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 really important to use those sort of um steps uh because um, you also in that process create space for other people like you to get there um so i i don't think that by uh working in museums in the west or or working for you know companies who work around this in in the west you become complicit i think when you have that opportunity what you do with that really defines um your actions so if you that. were to be yeah sorry i was just saying that if you were to be working for a museum here right and uh and you had the opportunity to let's say do a brown bag lunch on what we're discussing right now and you gather 10 people who are working with you and you speak about this mm-hmm. and they've never had this conversation before they have no idea what you're talking about and you use that opportunity to share um you know resources with them to introduce them to you know academics who write or who've done work on this um i'm sure there'll be people who would feel like they had no idea and uh, who who understand where you're coming from and i i i think that's that's really important yeah i i love that i love that approach and i think we all uh wish this podcast to to do something uh, similar to what you're talking about just to open people's mind to this sort of conversation I love how positive Nupu manages to stay even on the topic of complicity and compromise. And I agree with Lehi that engaging in dialogue as a way to expand perspectives around the complexity of the issues we are encountering is one goal of this podcast. Okay, so we have two uh, guests left that we're going to feature in this episode. And the next one is a clip of a conversation between myself and Alma Diamond, a constitutional legal scholar and PhD student who's currently based in New York City. Alma has shared so many thoughtful insights into ethics and philosophy with me over the past few months, and I'm really excited to share this short excerpt with you over how we see morality manifest in our daily lives. Mm. Yeah, it does. I mean, it does like a, on a in a in a broader sense like ethics is I don't know. It's it's hard. It's also hard to define, but it's it's it is coming from a place of an intentionality, right? Mm. Like just moving with with good intentions and keeping um you know, a compassionate and empathetic not mind, right? Like that's kind yeah. of Yeah. And I think like a lot of this is also an Iris Middock thought, but there's a lot of a lot of thought about morality whatever that is and is about what you do and like, you know, would be good to do this and bad to do this but also recognizing maybe again on the theme of just recognizing <laughs> like our recognizing the relative limits on our freedom to decide everything is recognizing that honestly what i do is very much shaped by how i feel and what i feel is incredibly shaped by what i see and how i see so if i see something and i'm incredibly angry i'm going to do something and i might regret it later but i i don't have that kind of protest like stoic control over my actions I think I might have even more control over just how I see things and how I understand things because that's where the emotion comes from and that's where the doing comes from. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I think that there's like, um, there are a lot of limitations on like how we see and perceive in terms of our like initial reaction. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot more control over how we understand or how we, you know, maybe not our initial reaction, but our secondary reaction, like how we're processing and, and how we, you know, I don't know, contextualize what we're, what we're intaking because that, um, you know, that spectrum of bias to preference that we have is embedded within us. And it's so, you know, talking about subverting, yeah. like those, those, those biases that we carry from our systems, from our upbringings, like um, it's really hard to affect those from like an initial standpoint, but um, we, it doesn't, we don't just end at our initial reactions, right? Like we're mm. complex beings, you know, thoughts and feelings and actions and all of that develops. So yeah. And to, um, to echo back what you said in the beginning, like that's the great, like the great job, the very important job for the ideal theoretical part. <laughs> think about these things and, and to have more tools to think about them maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, and then finding ways I do feel like like um i don't know maybe this is just me convincing myself for so long that like social advocacy work is like is is moving from a place of um kind of our sphere of influence our boundaries like understanding our relative positions of power and privilege and like finding ways to affect at that border mm. and so i think action comes into it at some point i'm not sure mm. is it enough or just to have intentional action and like if the effect isn't um you know what we want it to be because we don't have the influence to affect social systems like that's that's okay like the action still has validity even if we aren't affecting change yeah i mean and yet like the fundamental motivation at the background is like the way things are is just unacceptable <laughs> like things have to change it's not okay to this is contradicting everything else i said but it's not okay to just understand it better or to you know, admit complicity, like things have to change and things has changed. That's the other thing. Like even we, we have such a warped idea of history because we're so, we, we live for such short times. Like we like, we're like my, our history is very recent, but like if humans, if you look at humans being around for 40,000 years and how dramatically we've changed and restructured and destructured and reconstructed and deconstructed the way we think and conceive of societies, like things can change dramatically. Um, and then to find out what that means for what I should do now is something I don't know. I don't know what that means, but it must, we must be able to do something. It can't be that we should just make our peace with it. So a few points to reiterate here that there's value in recognizing the intention behind our actions and leading from a place of compassion and open-mindedness. Also, it's important to acknowledge the limitations of what we can do as an individual what we can control, what we can affect. Alma's point about feeling compelled to enact some change, however small, resonates with me deeply. And this quote I've recently came across from Franz Kafka. Okay, here's the quote. Time is short. My strength is limited. The office is a horror. The apartment is noisy. And if a pleasant, straightforward life is not possible, then one must try to wriggle through by subtle maneuvers. Wriggling through by subtle maneuvers, um, this is what ethical decision-making has become for me of late, finding ways to affect small changes that hopefully, collectively result in some positive change.
So Simone de Beauvoir says that ethics propose methods rather than recipes, and that's what we're going to do throughout this season, explore methods for affecting change, and make principle-based recommendations that are based off of our experiences. So finally, this leads me to the ethics of care, the feminist framework from which this podcast borrows its title. Instead of asking the decision maker to be unbiased, this framework recognizes that decisions are situational and morals are relative to their context. In reality, ethical decision making is influenced by the relationships we have with those around us. So this framework is complicated, with many writing about its practical applications since the term was codified in the 90s. Um, I want to give space to to let someone else describe it before I share my thoughts. So here is Nina Ofcharik, an educator and objects conservator at the University of Delaware, who gives her perspective on what the ethics of care means to her. Yeah, I mean, I don't think care ethics is any one thing. Um, But what I do pull from it and really value is the idea of relationality, relationships, that we're not alone in any of the work that we do. So I don't know, it's the relationships that the objects have and that the people have that really resonate with me for why we're doing this work and the value and importance of doing this work. Um, So I think that's where I'm coming from. And then I was looking for, well, how do I make sense of this in terms of conservation? So I started looking in different places and the, care of ethics kept coming up in different conversations that I was having. So I started looking at the care of ethics and where that comes from and what that says. And Carol Gilligan um, is really the person who started writing about care ethics or the the ethics of care. And then Joan Tronto was building on that and expanding that. And those are the two people that I really look at as like the beginners of this way of thinking for me. And so the, this framework that I've pulled from Joan Tronto really helps me organize my thoughts. It's not like this is the only way. There are many ways, but it helps me think about it in a way that I can access and relate to conservation work. Um, <laughs> so she outlines attentiveness, responsibility, competence, responsiveness, and then this joint quality of plurality, communication, trust, and respect. Um, Those are the things that she kind of picks out. And she's clear to say, like, these aren't the only things. And I agree with her. These aren't the only things. But they help me to kind of think about, well, why am I I a conservator? Why am I doing this at all? I appreciate Nina's perspective on how this framework helps her better understand why she does the work she does as a conservator and an educator. For me, the ethics of care has different potentials. I appreciate the emphasis the framework has on empathy and responsiveness and think that there are two main points that offer us pathways for thinking about the work we're doing. The first is the idea that we can begin and center relationships. We can recognize the inherent interconnectedness of all things and that we have some responsibility toward each other because of this interconnectedness. 
I love a lot of things about this tenet, um, in part how some have used the idea to explore alternatives to hierarchical structures. The second tenet I'm particularly interested in is how we can make decisions with the intent to provide support to those with the greatest needs. And this point is really premised on the idea of embedding compassion into our decision-making models and looking for ways to cultivate empathy in our practice. So this second point is what gave us the inspiration for this season, to explore how the idea of collective success can manifest in the work that we're doing. Hi, my name is Emily Farrick. I am a co-producer of this podcast, and my voice is signaling that you have made it to the end of the first episode. We hope that you are intrigued and join us again in two weeks. Our episode will focus on what it means to care, and we'll share some foundational ideas on what it means to form community. To close out, we'd like to extend a message of sincere gratitude to the granting agencies that have provided us financial support to pay all the participants in this venture, the Winterthur University of Delaware Program in Art Conservation and the Society of Winterthur Fellows. We could not be doing this project without your support, so thank you for believing in us. We'd also like to recommend you check out our social media page, managed by Adriana Benavides and Maribel Cosme Vitaliani. It's at the Ethics of Caring Pod and whatisconservation.com, where this podcast is hosted. Until soon.